Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Some of you are just fearful now that that means I'm going to talk a long time. And <laughs> I mean, I'm not in a hurry, but I'm kind of in a hurry. I mean, <laughs> I uh, am enlightened, part of the enlightenment, in fact, and so are you. I don't know if you realize that, but you are. That's been going on for a while, and it shapes who we are and how we think. So if you would have sliced the universe open, you know, maybe three or four centuries ago, at the core of the universe, every human being on the planet believed was the divine. That's what you would have found. Which then impacts and influences how we think, how we relate to one another, how we behave, how we operate in our own spiritual lives. Because at the core of the universe, there is the divine. And then Sir Isaac Newton came along and... An apple fell on his head, and, you know, we began the Enlightenment movement. We became enlightened. And so it didn't take long until if you slice the universe open at the core, you would find natural principles that control how the world works. And so we are all a part, a product of the Enlightenment, and it's how we think. There is cause and effect. It's very much a part of who we are and how we function in the world. In fact, our expectation is enormously high that there are natural laws and principles that control everything and that we are advanced enough as a culture and society that we ought to be able to control the outcomes, which defines a lot of what we talk about in our culture. If we would stop doing that and start doing this, we would get the outcomes we desire. (laughs) Amen? That's why things like the pandemic are so difficult for us as a culture, because they seem not to have neat, tidy answers. We don't seem to be able to get the cause and effect we desire, because there's variables for which we can't account. And we feel that way in the broad sense of the culture. Any disease that we can't tackle and resolve, any sort of problem that we can't get to. But it doesn't slow down our mentality about the world. And that simply is, if everybody would behave themselves and do the right thing, we would get the outcomes we want. Of course, one of the greatest offenders in this process of getting everybody to do what they want is superstition. It's, it's stuff where people believe weird stuff, and then they don't behave themselves by the natural laws that govern the world. Chief among them are religious people who practice all kinds of things that seem to defy the natural law. So if you just trace culture, everybody okay, by the way? <laughs> Good morning. Welcome. How are you? Nice to have you. Welcome, folks online. We're glad to have all of you here. And we're taking the second week of Advent. We're talking about our postures before God. We talked last week about life from God. That's where people live in a space where we believe that God, as God blesses us, you know, gives us good things, then we're better Christians. Amen. I think, you know, we even build theologies around it. You know, prosperity theology. God wants you to have everything you ever wanted. He wants everything to work out perfectly, even though that is not the biblical story. We're leaning into a book by Sky Jathani called With. I encourage you to buy the book and read it as you make your journey through Advent. Uh, But to just think a little bit about this reality that 
Sometimes when we, 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 Jathani says in the book, we're inoculating entire generations to Christianity because we're teaching them things about God that aren't true. God does not give us everything we want. In life, you will have trouble, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. And today we're thinking about life over God and what that might look like. So if you went back a few decades and you, you jumped into the 1950s, you would find a culture in the United States that's largely defined by principles by which we live. There's a very, very strong sense of what is culturally acceptable, and it's a fairly narrow definition. I'm not saying we should head back there. I'm just saying it was highly defined. I mean, generally, we knew who everybody was supposed to be in the culture. We knew who men were supposed to be. We knew who women were supposed to be. We knew who children were supposed to be. It was highly defined. And if you varied very much from the highly defined cultural interpretation, then you were weird. You were odd. You were out of step. And then the 60s came. And the Enlightenment took hold in a big way. And so we started to go, we don't need all that superstition anymore. In fact, all we need is Love, and love is all we need. And so we should have not only love, but free love. You should have as much love as you can get. The more, the merrier. Welcome to the 60s. Some of you are like, yeah, I remember. Some of you are like, I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> Older people help the younger people. So we got songs like, imagine, imagine there's no heaven. No religion, nothing to fight and die for. Just natural law people doing the right thing, there'll be peace and tranquility. The world will work the way it's supposed to. We are a part of the Enlightenment. And, and while we can recognize that historically, guess what? The Enlightenment invades our theology. And we think God works the same way the natural laws work. So we just want to learn a few principles about God so He'll do the things He needs to do to give us the outcomes we want. I mean, there's nothing more to... In fact, let's just take the whole style of preaching. If I said to you, today I have a sermon, and the sermon has 17 points, how many of you would be excited? <laughs> One, thank you. Because <laughs> we, we've reduced even a sermon. The pastor is supposed to come after a week of studying, and in 20 minutes present three points in a poem that will help you transform your life. Amen? I mean, it's the ideal sermon. Best sermon ever heard. Three ways to transform your marriage. Finally, three, that's manageable. I can do three. <laughs> Don't make it five or seven. That's too many for me to remember. And so this natural law begins to invade even our own theologies. As we look then to God's Word to find principles by which we can get the outcomes we want. We just do the things God wants us to do. And I don't know how you were raised, but I was raised in an environment that was like, here's how you do, here's all the things you need to do, and if you do all these things, then God will do these things. Don't you wish it was all that predictable? Because and... I don't know how that worked for you. To me, it's, there's a couple of ways that works. For some people, they said, I did all the principles and God didn't do his part, therefore God doesn't get to be God anymore. I can't tell you how many times in my journey as a pastor, I've heard somebody say, if that's who God is, I don't want God I don't want any part of that. I did my part. He didn't do his part. He doesn't get to be God anymore. Happens all the time. 
It's happening to generations of kids. If God allows that in the world, I don't want any part of it. We're inoculating whole generations to faith in God because we're teaching something that isn't biblical. But I didn't really reject God. I did the other thing. I rejected me. I just said, oh, well, I guess I didn't get all the principles right. God's okay, but I'm not. I'm a mess. I'm not able to live out all the principles. If I could just get better, if I could just be better, if I could just do better, if I could behave better, if I could think better, if I could have more devotional time. That was a big thing, wasn't it? I don't know how many of you grew up in that era. I remember going to things and hearing youth speakers talk and say, you young people, what you need to do is get up at 4 a.m. and pray for an hour. And I thought that was true. I thought that was true. I thought I needed to get up every morning early. You understand what I'm saying? Get up early. You understand? Wake up before I had to. Just to spend time with God. And I did for days at a time. And then I repented and started over. I'm going to pray. I'm going to read my Bible every day. I'm going to stay awake this time. And it wasn't God that was messed up. It was me. Because I wasn't able to live out the principles in such a way that God was doing the things that He was supposed to do. That I had been taught, if I do these things, then God will do these things. And the enlightenment got inside my theology. It's just all natural law. Moses demonstrates this. You know the story of Moses. God comes to him and says, hey, Moses, I want you to lead my people out of captivity. And Moses says, I'm not qualified to do that. I, I don't speak well. I got none of the, I'm not the guy. Not to mention that I'm 80 years old. <laughs> I don't really want to go. And God says, I'll be with you. Take that staff that you have in your hand. It will become the tool. It will become the vehicle through which God's power is demonstrated in your life. And so the staff becomes this thing. And so Moses goes before Pharaoh, and he says, let my people go. And he says, no. And he throws the staff on the ground, and it turns into a serpent. And everybody goes, whoa. And the staff becomes then this vehicle through which God's power is manifest in his life. And so the, the, the plagues are initiated with the staff. He raises the staff. He touches the Nile. The Nile turns to blood. You know, when they finally are released and they leave, they come to the Red Sea. He touches the staff. It parts. They walk through on dry land. They get out into the desert. You follow the story, right? They get out into the desert. They don't have any water. They're complaining. We should have just died in Israel. I mean, we should have died in Egypt. We were better off. Now we're going to die in the desert. And God says, strike the rock with the staff. And so Moses goes and strikes the rock with the staff, and water pours out enough for all of the people and enough for all of the animals, and it's a great story. Now, this is where the story gets weird. Just a little later, they come to another moment in which they're thirsty and there's no water. And they are rebelling. They are in full-blown rebellion against God. Saying again, we should have gone back. I don't know what kind of leader you are. You've let us out. Did you not have a plan? What was going on? And Moses goes before God and says, what am I supposed to do? And God says, speak to the rock before the people, and it will give you water. And Moses immediately takes the staff and whacks the rock. And water comes out. But God says to Moses, because you struck the rock and you didn't speak to it, you will never enter the promised land. It's, it's dire consequences for Moses. And you're like, well, that's a weird story. What's kind of story is that? Here's the kind of story it is. Somehow, in your cause and effect thinking, 
You started to believe it was about the staff. But it wasn't about the staff. It was about God. The staff was just a tool. So when I said, speak to the rock, you chose instead to take what you knew to work, what had always worked in your life. You chose a principle instead of a relationship. And it is never okay to choose the principle over the relationship. And I just think when I hear that, yikes. Yikes. I mean, God knows if, if I'm going to buy a book, it better say something like this. Seven steps to being a better pastor. <clears throat> Amen. I mean, those are the books that sell. That's what we want to read. That's what we want to know. That's what we want to understand. <coughs> That's how we want to relate to things. We want to simplify. We want to get down to the bottom of it. And yet what we really understand is that this doesn't really work. It doesn't work for us as individuals in our faith, and it doesn't work for the culture. So, so if we bought this idea that if we got rid of all the superstition and we just abided by the natural laws, then we could fix everything. We could fix the environment. We could fix the government. That's a big movement that's going on in our culture right now. If we could get rid of these old ideas, and if we all just practice these new enlightened ideas, then everything would be okay, like it's never been tried before. Like, atheism has never been the tool by which we have decided if we just got rid of all superstition, if we just had a purely empirical society built on cause and effect, that we could clean up the mess, i.e., communism in Russia. Never mind that we believe probably 20 million people died in that revolution. Mao's Cultural Revolution in China. Estimates are about 65 million people died in that in order to purge the culture from these ideas that are holding us back. The Khmer Rouge more recently wiped out an entire generation, two million people in Cambodia, removed because they stood in the way of the cause and effect of how we're going to fix the world. North Korea continues to live under an oppressive idea that if we got rid of all of those other ideas, if we just had cause and effect, we could heal the world. We could fix everything. And we buy into that. We may not all agree on what needs to change or who we need to get rid of, but we all sort of, if we got it right, somewhere in there there's this underlying message in the Word of God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Oh, I hate that. That's my best thing. I mean, trust in the Lord with all my heart. I mean, honestly, would you say, I mean, wouldn't that be a better verse if it said, trust in the Lord with a significant percentage of your heart? Because <laughs> I'd be like, I'm like 49% here. I had a day when I was 62%. But trust in the Lord with all my heart? And then the next part is just lean not on my own understanding. I don't even know how to relate to the world in any other way. I mean, this is, this is the narrow gate through which everything must pass. I want it to make sense. I, I, I would feel way better about the world and God. I don't even mind suffering. Just tell me why. Just tell me what it's about. Just help my understanding. If I could just understand, because I'm a part of the enlightenment. I'm enlightened. I want cause and effect. Amen? 
And when I can't see it or understand it, I get really frustrated. Even though God has told me directly, trust in the Lord with all your heart, don't lean on your understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Meaning, as you walk these paths that you don't fully understand and can't comprehend, trust Him and acknowledge Him. Yeah, God's in control. That would be like looking at the world today and going, I don't get it, but this is my Father's world. I don't really get it. Well, how does this fit? I have no idea. Can't explain that. How does this thing that's going on culturally? I don't know. I just don't know. I just know that I trust in the Lord with all my heart. I don't try to figure it all out for myself because evidently his ways are higher than my ways and his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. They ought to put that in the Bible. (laughs) You know, they just ought to put it in there. It is in there for those of you that don't know. (laughs) Then I read this little story about Herod, Matthew 2. Just listen to all the things Herod does. He does so many of the things we would do. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Matthew 2, 1. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked, Where is the one who is born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and he said, Go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. And after they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead and them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and they presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So this is what Moses, Moses, this is what Herod does. He hears that the Messiah is about to be born. And so what does he do? He consults the scriptures. So far, so good. And then he invites in the experts. It's what I would have done. It's kind of what we do, isn't it? We consult scriptures. We, we check on the experts. You know, we try to get to the bottom of it. We try to have this understanding of what's going on. And then he worked the system. Then he said, hey, I, you know, I want to worship too. Why don't you go find him? And when you find him, you come back and tell me. Because really, underneath it all, what I really want out of this is I want to control the outcome. So I've consulted the scriptures, I've talked to the experts, I've worked the system, and now what's he going to do when he finds the Christ child? He's going to reject the person. He's going to reject the person. At least for Herod, we go, well, that's totally in keeping with his character, we're not really surprised. What did the Jews do? We opened last week with this question, how did, in, how did Christmas go the way it went? People who had been waiting and watching and anticipating and looking for the Christ child for hundreds of years missed him when he showed up. And it wasn't that they entirely missed him, because he kind of stood up and said, I'm him. So they consulted the scriptures, they checked with the experts, they worked the system, and they rejected the person. Because Why? Because he didn't give them the outcomes they desired. 
they didn't get out of it what they wanted. So that Jesus becomes a stumbling block. Super difficult. Jathani writes these words. The religious leaders in Jesus' time were expert students of the Scripture. They had memorized the entire Old Testament. They had parsed every command. They had extracted every principle. They had delineated every instruction it contained. But their mastery of Scripture had not resulted in actually knowing God or even recognizing Him when He stood in front of them. Jesus said to these leaders, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me, yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. Those are convicting words, aren't they? In fact, I'm going to just read this quote because I don't want to say this out loud, but it's worth hearing. You ready? When the Bible is primarily seen as a depository of divine principles for life, it fundamentally changes the way we engage God and His Word. Rather than a vehicle for knowing God and fostering our communion with Him, we search the Scripture for applicable principles that we may employ to control our world and our life. This is not Christianity. It is instead Christian deism. Christian deism, let's have a little lesson now. Deism is uh, uh, the belief, in fact, I love this because, you know, we do say this among ourselves, that our, that our country was founded on Christian principles. It was really founded on Christian deism, which basically uh, most of our leaders that came to this country, uh, though some of them came because of a fervent faith, later on, they believed that God created the world and then he stepped aside to let it run itself. It's sometimes called the watchmaker argument that God built this intricate machine and then he sits over there and natural law functions and runs the machine, but God doesn't intervene in a lot of ways. He doesn't show up in dramatic ways. He just is, he's sort of absent from the process. And so when we buy into this idea of deism, then we begin to focus on how do we make the watch function the best way it can. How do we take care of the watch? How do we run it the best way? How do we operate it the best way? How do we get out of it how it's been designed to work? But that seems to go against the very heart of what God intended. That God became tabernacled in human flesh and dwelt among us so that we might know Him. And that God's work in each of our lives is, is so personal like don't you wonder sometimes when somebody says I heard God speak to me don't you like go well I wish God to speak to me but would I ever be in the space we're told studies tell us right now about 1500 pastors are leaving the ministry per month in these last couple of years 1500 per month why because most pastors are trained to work the principles of the kingdom. And when the principles of the kingdom don't produce the outcomes that are labeled as successful, bigger churches, more people, higher profiles, they become discouraged because they're doing all of the principles without getting the outcomes they're promised. And the weight eventually becomes too heavy for them to carry and they quit because they must not be good at it. 
when what we really want and desire is faithfulness. Whatever that might look like. And isn't that true for each of us too? Don't, don't I look at it that way? I'm doing all the principles, God. How did this happen? Why did this happen? Why is this happening? Why is it not happening different? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with you? You'll call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Life will defy logic. It will be full of fear if I believe that I have to do everything right in order to get God to do what He needs to do. I mean, what kind of relationship is that? What kind of freedom is that? What kind of joy is that? Three principles that I think matter a lot and will solve all of your problems if you just put them into practice. I heard somebody laugh early on that, so stop getting ahead. Stay with me. I only have one or two jokes. <clears throat> this life over God posture does several things. Number one, it reduces and limits God to reproducible formulas. I love this about being a pastor. Today, I can go to my email. I bet you while I'm up here talking, my inbox is filling up with emails from other pastors who are inviting me to a conference that will teach me to grow my church the way they grew their church. What's wrong with this picture? Mostly, how they grew their church has zero to do with how to grow my church. Zero. I mean, I might learn some business principles, and they might be really good. I might learn some practices. I might get some insights. I think we look at other people and we go, well, their life seems to be going great. How do I do what they do so that I can get what they're getting? And the problem is you can't. You can't. And somehow this life over God posture begins to believe that if I just break it down the right way, if I just understand it, and I'm not saying there aren't principles by which we live. I'm just saying how much we have come to rely on these principles so that we get the outcomes we want. And when we don't, we feel like our spiritual life is broken, like something's wrong. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will give you everything you want. It doesn't even say that. And He will direct your path. He will say, okay, here's the next step. Here's the next step. Here's the next step. I don't know about you, but principles are way better than relationships. You look at me like that. Relationships are hard. They're unpredictable. They're messy. People are unpredictable. Amen? Come on, you're all like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Snooty. Because we're all looking for the same thing. Here's, here's three principles by which to raise your children, and they will never do anything to disappoint you. You write that book, that'll sell. People will buy that book. And we as parents, we already know, look, I didn't have three principles with one of my kids, much less, more than one. I mean, the next kid, none of those principles worked. Amen? Because why? Because it's a relationship. And relationships defy that. Somebody said, I used to have a lot of theories and no children, and now I have children and no theories. Because <laughs> that's the nature of relationship. And we don't want that from God. 
We want God to behave in highly predictable. We want to do these things so that God will do those things. And he says, I'm not inviting you to that. I'm inviting you to personal relationship with me so that no matter whatever happens in your journey, I will be with you. You will never be alone. I'll go with you. I will hold you up. I will carry you through. When you can't make any sense out of it, I'll still be there. I'll still hang on to you. Forget those principles. They may be guidelines. They may be things that indicate something. But I'm more personal than that. I'm not going to live inside of all of that. I'm more than that. In fact, my strength will be made perfect in your... When you finally give up and stop ciphering, is that a good word? Stop formulating and figuring and... When you finally get to the point where you go, I can't, I'm not enough, I don't get it, I, I'm, I'm not there, then I'll be able to say, you know what, my strength's going to be made perfect in that weakness because now I can step into that space with you and I can fill up what's lacking. But as long as you're working the system, there's no space for me. It's just a transaction. We're just exchanging currencies. Your faith for my goodness, and that is not what I want. It's not what I created. It's not what I desire. Number two, it does not take away our fear. When I believe that my life has to get all of these principles right in order for God to do the things He needs to do, then my focus becomes on getting all these things right. And I get down into the minutia. Because I don't know about you, but I can behave on the outside, even if I'm not behaving on the inside. I know, just me. <laughs> just me. So I'm not like a terribly angry person. I don't know if you know this about me. I'm pretty mild. Doesn't mean I'm not angry. So if you ride with me in the car, <laughs> I don't yell at people. I don't honk the horn ever. I don't make rude gestures. Seems counterproductive to being a pastor. However, I do have a running commentary. I just calmly talk the whole time I'm driving. And it's funny. But it's mean. Because I'm, I'm being just as nasty as the person yelling. I just do it in a more calm way. I'm more stylized. And I bet I'm not the only one. I bet I'm not the only one that on the outside we look like we got it all together, but inside, it's just like, Wah. I would never post that on Facebook, although I'm thinking it. <laughs> Amen? Ooh, they got them. <laughs> I can't even like it, but I like it. <laughs> Does not produce a life free of fear. Because if I think I've got to get all this minutia right in order for God to do what he's going to do, all he's asking me to do is surrender, to just let go. Number three, it shifts our focus from faithfulness to outcome. If I, if I could just give you one gift for the Christmas season, it would be this. God loves you far beyond the outcomes. And sometimes I think we look at our life and go, well, I'm not getting what I wanted, therefore, you know, I'm not sure I'm doing what God wants me to do. Or I'm not sure God is... 
God desires faithfulness from us. Just faithfulness. And that you and I are invited to spend time in His presence. I mean, what a crazy principle. That I don't have to pray a prayer that has taken into account all the things and all the ways in which I'm supposed to phrase it. I don't have to say it all the right way. In fact, I don't even have to speak while I sit in the presence of God. I can quiet my heart and simply commune with God. That I'm invited to faithfulness, not outcomes. And if I'm measuring my life and I'm measuring God and I'm measuring the quality of my spiritual life by the outcomes, and we do this. Well, my, my kid is struggling, so therefore I must not have prayed the right way or does, or what did I do to cause and how did I do and where's my deficiency? And That's an endless thing. What if we just stopped and said, I, I, I'm sure I've messed it up. But I'm today faithfully in a space where I am attempting to understand and follow God. And I'm trusting Him to redeem whatever failures have happened in the past. Because He says in all things He's going to work for the good of those that love Him and are called. And if He's for us, who can be against us? And I'm supposed to rest in this space and just trust. (laughs) But sometimes this life over God posture (laughs) causes me to feel like i got to be doing a bunch of stuff so God can do what He's supposed to do. We're going to close in a moment and share communion together. And it feels so appropriate <laughs> that on a day like this, we would stop and go, you know what? I don't need to pray a bunch of prayers or figure out, here's the symbol. I know you're going to need more than a bunch of words. You're going to need to hold in your hands actual something tactile that you can touch. This is my broken body and shed blood. Take and eat in remembrance that Christ died for you. Let it get inside of you and nourish you from the inside out. You don't have to think about it. In a few minutes, you'll go eat lunch and you won't go, I hope this nourishes this part of my body. No, you just stick it in there and you figure the system's going to work. And I think Jesus said, I'm just like that. Faithful and I'll do my work. You don't have to always have this so deeply entrenched in everything you do. Maybe you just need to know, I've got you. I've got you. And in fact... There is nothing that will ever separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Not life, not death, not things present, not things to come, not powers, not principalities. Nothing. I'm going to invite the band to come back. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads. God, we give you thanks that although you gave us this incredible book that is your word, Your intention was that it was a path to our lives and our journey that leads us to you. Its intention was to connect us intimately with you. To be the guidebook by which we come into a saving, loving relationship with you. In fact, So powerful is this relationship 
that as we walk in it, it actually illuminates the Word for us. We begin to understand things we never understood. We, we see things we never saw. It becomes a living Word that grows and informs us in ways that we never even imagined. A verse we might have read a hundred times comes to life because of the power of our relationship with you. And so we humble ourselves. God, we want to know you. We don't want to use you or manipulate you or try to believe that we've discovered principles that will get us the outcomes we want. We know that life's unpredictable. We know that bad things happen to good people. We acknowledge that there's pain in the world and loss. But we also acknowledge that nothing can ever separate us from you. That in all things you're working for our good. That there is more to life than meets the eye. That we fix our eyes on what is unseen because what is unseen is eternal and what is seen is temporary. It's the heart of our faith. It's the core of who you've invited us to be. <clears throat> and so for Christmas, we're asking for a new posture. We're surrendering our life from God posture and our life over God posture. We want to spend our life with God. I pray over these folks who are gathered, who will listen through the course of this week, who are with us now online, I'm praying, God, that you'll show up in their journey, in their life, in their heart, in their mind, in their spirit. Make yourself known in personal, personal, personal ways. We're quieting ourselves. This week, I'm going to ask you to spend five minutes a day, just five minutes saying, God, in what ways am I practicing this life over God posture? In what ways have I burdened myself with getting it all right? And don't just pray it. Practice silence. Let God be with you. And as there are insights, write them down. I want to arrive at Christmas Eve with a journal of the, the journey that I've been on. I, I, I want to remember things that I know I'll forget. We're asking for a new posture, the one you intended. We recognize that this feast is for your disciples. That each of us, as we confess our sins, we are invited to participate. And, and maybe there's somebody that's never really confessed and received forgiveness. We're going to pray a prayer of repentance as a, crowd, as a congregation, and we invite you to join us. Your promise is that these elements are instruments of grace. I pray that through this moment, you would apportion grace to each person as there is need. We prepare our hearts for this table by confessing to you our sins. We're so thankful that your word teaches that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We dedicate these elements to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and everyone said together, Amen. 
the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was broken for you. Preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Take and eat in remembrance that Christ died for you. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you, preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Take and drink in remembrance that Christ died for you and be thankful. Now, God, as you hear our response to your word, would you go with us into this week and would you allow each of us in our journey to know you better? We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand as we respond to the word? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.